Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.2, The Matriarch of Europe. I hope that you enjoyed the first episode two weeks ago and are as excited as I am about the start of the second season of the podcast. Today, we're going to look at the life and times of the mother and grandmother of all the women that we will examine in this series, Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom and Empress of India. But before we get going, I'd first like to remind you about the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. I have an amazing group of patrons on there that have been supporting me as a podcaster for a couple of years now, and I could not be more grateful to them as they keep the lights on here, helping out with the costs of running the show. If you'd like to join them, then head on over to the page and sign up for as little as a dollar a month. I would also be grateful, if you like the show, if you could leave a review wherever you listen to it. It really helps the podcast out. I've been getting some messages from you all already about people that you'd like me to cover during this series, so keep them coming on the Facebook page or by email at theotherhalfpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into the show. If you're new here, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Mid to late 19th century Europe contained a great many powerful personalities. Bismarck, Palmerston, Garibaldi, Alexander II, to name but a few. But none held the influence or respect of an entire continent quite like the woman that was known as the matriarch of Europe. Queen Victoria was exceptional in so many ways. The first Georgian regnant British queen, the first woman to rule the nation in over a hundred years, 
For most of her life, she was the only woman to rule a kingdom in all of Europe. Until very recently, she was the longest reigning monarch in British history. And, depending on how you count it, the longest reigning female monarch of all time. Both of these honours have now been overtaken by Queen Elizabeth II. Interestingly, for you former Queens of England listeners, Eleanor of Aquitaine holds the record for the longest ruling female head of state, as she ruled Aquitaine as Duchess for 66 years. Victoria was one of those figures that people at the time could not conceive of a world in which she did not live. She was born into a world that was still just recovering from the tumult of the Napoleonic Wars. It was a world where the fastest way of conveying information was still a man on a horse, where you could only get a likeness by paint and brush. The only light after dark came from a flame. The slave trade still ran in the colonies. Democracy existed in a sense, but suffrage was only extended to around 400,000 people, all men, and the system was riddled with corruption, with local landowners exerting great control over the makeup of the house. When she died 81 years later in 1901, railways, canals and telegraphs crisscrossed the country. Photography, electricity and a myriad of other inventions had transformed the lives of some 40 million people in Britain and Ireland more than twice the number of people that had lived in her kingdom when she was born. Slavery in all its forms was banned, and the majority of men had the vote in modern one-member, one-vote constituencies. The world had changed in a way that would have been previously inconceivable. Her long life has been chronicled many times by a variety of historians, each with their own take. Even those that only cover aspects of her life and times, her marriage, palaces, children, run to hundreds and hundreds of pages, let alone her mammoth tome biographies. My comfort zone in history is the Middle Ages, and there we're lucky if we have more than about three or four narrative sources. We rejoice if any kind of correspondence exists, and anything that came from the pen of the subjects of our story is met with tears of joy. This means that Queen Victoria is an unfathomably overwhelming person to cover in full for someone like me. As she was a prodigious journaler and wrote many hundreds, perhaps thousands of letters every year. Her personal journals alone run to 112 volumes. And even though quite a bit of them were edited or expunged by members of her family, a huge amount still exists. And yet, I'm going to try and tell you about her early life in one half-hour or so episode. Good thing I like a challenge. She was born on the 24th of May, 1819, to Prince Edward, Duke of Kent, and his wife, Princess Victoria of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. There was a great tussle over what her name would actually be, largely because the Prince Regent didn't want to give her a very regal name due to his hatred of her father. In the end, they named her Alexandrina in honour of her godfather, Tsar Alexander I of Russia, with Victoria, her mother's name, being a middle name, but it is by that name that she will become known to history. Her grandfather, George III, had produced a great number of sons, but they were all far more interested in frittering away their lives with mistresses of various different social classes than they were in doing their duty for king and country in the bedroom. Her eldest uncle, Prince George, the Prince Regent and future George IV, had been the only one to have a legitimate child up to that point, but she died in childbirth, along with the child, in 1817. This meant that, even though her father was the fourth son of the king, she became the only legitimate grandchild, 
and therefore the heir once her uncles died. She would later describe her childhood as being, quote, very melancholy. Her father died when she was only eight months old, meaning that she was entirely brought up by her overprotective mother and by her domineering and ambitious favourite, John Conroy. He was a pretty loathsome man, and engaged in a campaign of isolation and emotional abuse against Victoria. His strategy, known to us as the Kensington system, inculcated the young girl from the rest of the world, cutting her off from relatives and preventing her from making many friends. It was a kind of gilded captivity. The aim was to force her into complete dependence on Conroy and her mother. She only had two real allies – her uncle Leopold, her mother's brother, whose money supported them both, and her German governess, Baroness Louise Lazen. This was no way to educate a future queen. One of her earliest biographers, Linton Strachey, writes the following of Victoria's childhood. Quote, Her private life had been that of a novice in a convent. Hardly a human being from the outside world had ever spoken to her, and no human being at all, except her mother and the Baroness Lazen, had ever been alone with her in a room. To survive this childhood, she had to develop a very strong will and sense of her own importance in the world. There is a famous story that, when playing at the age of four with one of the very few friends afforded to her, she said to her, quote, I may call you Jane, but you must not call me Victoria. Later in her childhood, she was presented with the family tree of the British royal family, which showed her place in the succession. After bursting into tears at the fear of the prospect of becoming queen one day, she quickly studied her nerves before precociously declaring, quote, I will be good. She was granted a fairly decent academic education, especially by the general standards of female instruction at the time. She was taught various languages, including German, Italian and French, along with the social sciences. She also developed an interest in painting and kept pet dogs, leading to a lifelong affection for animals. She would not submit to Conroy, as her mother had, but her unhappy childhood left two effects that would surface in later life. The first is the lack of positive male influence and a father figure. This gave her the tendency to form powerful emotional attachments to certain men in her life, most notably her first Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, and of course her husband, Prince Albert. The second was a rather conflicted relationship with motherhood, both of which I will deal with a little later on. She only managed to throw off her mother and Conroy shackles in 1837, when, at the age of just 18, she became queen. Conroy tried to force her into making him her private secretary, even going so far as to launching what can only be described as a coup. But Victoria would not be swayed, and he would eventually be banished. Upon her succession to the throne, she wrote the following in her diary. Quote, Since it has pleased Providence to place me in this station, I shall do my utmost to fulfil my duty towards my country. I am very young, and perhaps in many, though not in all things, inexperienced, but I am sure that very few have more real goodwill and more real desire to do what is fit and right than I have. Now, if I ask you to picture Queen Victoria in your head and then tell me what you saw, I imagine that you would describe an elderly, austere lady, the humorless widow dressed in black. Yet the young teenager who ascended to the throne in 1837 was far from that caricature. 
She was flirtatious, enjoyed informality, and, when she eventually married, would become a lover of sex and intimacy. She would never be particularly renowned for her beauty. Indeed, contemporaries would often be exceedingly harsh about her appearance. But she marked a sharp contrast to her lecherous, selfish uncles who had preceded her on the throne. It was a new beginning. Lord John Russell, a great reforming politician and future Prime Minister, made the following speech in Parliament on her coronation. Quote, We have had glorious female reigns. Those of Elizabeth and Anne led us to great victories. Let us now hope that we are going to have a female reign illustrious in its deeds of peace. An Elizabeth without her tyranny, an Anne without her weakness. I trust that we may succeed in making the reign of Victoria celebrated among the nations of the earth and to all posterity, and that England may not forget her precedence of teaching the nations how to live. Even at the time then, people believed that they were living in the dawning of a new age. Yet, her youth, inexperience and terrible preparation to rule meant that she did make early mistakes. To start with, she became overly close with her first Prime Minister, the charming and caring yet fairly ineffective Lord Melbourne. Julia Baird, in her biography of Victoria, described their relationship as being one of history's greatest platonic romances. He was a handsome, charming aristocrat in his 50s. He provided advice and guidance for her. She increases social and political standing. He was probably the first person, certainly the first man, to treat her with any kind of real affection, and the closest of their relationship, along with their shared Whig politics, meant they formed a firm bond and partnership. She considered him to be absolutely indispensable to her as she transitioned into her new role as Queen. This, unfortunately, led to problems. Melbourne was a divorced man, his wife having had a scandalous affair with Lord Byron, and therefore the fact that he was spending many hours of every day alone in the young Queen's company inevitably attracted gossip. Most of what I have read agrees that this is all poppycock, but it was something that was believed by some, mostly Melbourne's political enemies. More problematically, it also led to her forgetting her position as a constitutional monarch and openly favouring her Prime Minister over politicians from the opposition Tory party. In 1839, two years into her reign, Lord Melbourne's Whig government forced a vote on a bill that would have ended slavery in the Jamaican sugar trade. It won, but by only five votes, such a humiliating outcome that Melbourne felt that he had no choice but to resign and recommend that Victoria make his opposite number, the Tory party leader Lord Peel, her new Prime Minister. The Queen was devastated. She wrote in her journal, quote, The state of agony, grief and despair into which this placed me may easier be imagined than described. All, all my happiness gone. That happy, peaceful life destroyed. The dearest, kind Lord Melbourne, no more my minister. When Peel came to see the Queen to form his new government, he impressed upon her the need for her to make changes to the makeup of her household. Many of her ladies were the wives of prominent Whigs, and it would be most improper and damaging to the image of a neutral crown if they were to remain in place. Victoria was outraged and absolutely refused to part with her ladies. Peel tried to compromise, suggesting that only the most senior ladies of the bedchamber be replaced by Tory women, but the Queen was warming to her task. 
She knew that if she refused him, then he would not be able to form a government, and that Melbourne would have to come back as Prime Minister. This did indeed happen, but the bedchamber crisis, as this affair would become known, damaged her reputation. She was slammed in the press, and angry crowds gathered outside the palace, outraged by this blatant display of royal partiality. It was, in effect, a coup against the British constitution. A queen had, effectively, on her own authority and against the will of Parliament, dismissed a Prime Minister. She would, though, learn from her mistakes. Many years later, she would remark about the affair, quote, Yes, I was very hot about it, and so were my ladies, as I had been brought up under Lord Melbourne. But I was very young, only twenty, and never should have acted so again. Yes, it was a mistake. At the time, though, this mistake was further compounded by the Flora Hastings affair where one of her mother's ladies, the aforesaid Flora Hastings, was accused of having had an affair with the hated John Conroy. Hastings had been part of the Kensington system that had isolated and deprived Victoria of a happy childhood, and thus the Queen was willing to believe the worst of her. All while the bedchamber crisis was going on, Hastings' belly began to swell and she complained of pain in the abdomen. Gossip said that she was pregnant, that it was Conroy's baby. She denied this, insisting that she was ill, but the gossip continued to swirl, egged on by the Queen, all the while her condition worsened. It was, eventually, correctly diagnosed as terminal liver cancer. When she died, a few months later, public opinion, already against her after the bedchamber crisis, turned decisively against Victoria. She and Melbourne were hissed at in the streets, and passers-by engaged in public defiance by refusing to remove their hats. Her reign, which had begun with such hope, was already on the rocks. But things were about to change. As someone who had spent her entire childhood essentially imprisoned and subservient, Victoria was extremely wary of the confinement and restrictions of contemporary marriage. Like her predecessor Elizabeth I, She feared what may happen to her own power and prestige should a man come along and sit beside her on the throne. Mightn't he wish to take her place? She also had very little in the way of marital role models. She had never seen her parents together, and the marriage of her uncles, not to mention that of her mentor Lord Melbourne, had been disasters. She wrote in her journal in April 1839 that she felt a, quote, great repugnance at the thought of marrying. On another occasion, she described the whole notion as, quote, odious. She was not wanting for suitors from home and abroad, though, with the princes of Orange, France and Saxe-Coburg, more on that in a second, being considered. The lack of movement on this front, while Victoria was heir and in her early years on the throne, led to wild speculation. The American presses, for example, reported that President Martin Van Buren, a widower in his 50s, was considering making an offer. The man to have come closest to winning her hand, though, before Albert, was Grand Duke Alexander of Russia, the future Tsar Alexander II, who spent three days in the British court while on a grand tour of Europe during which he hoped to find a wife. While he was there, the two regularly danced together and shared a box at the theatre. She found him to be extremely handsome and charming, and she declared that, quote, I really am quite in love with the Grand Duke, I never enjoyed myself more. 
However, marriage was never really on the cards, and he ended up marrying, you guessed it, a German. The man who eventually would win her heart, and her hand, was also a German. Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha was the second son of the womanising Duke Ernest of Saxe-Coburg and Louise of Saxe-Gotha. He and his brother Ernest grew up in an unhappy household. His pretty and vivacious mother was extremely unhappy at the flagrant womanising of her husband, who, after the birth of Albert, seems to have spent almost his entire time between the sheets of his various mistresses. She ran off with a dashing young army officer, and was forced to abandon her children. Albert never forgot her, nor stopped loving her, keeping a pin that she had given him before her departure, one that he would give to Victoria in one of their first meetings. He and Victoria were first cousins, sharing a common grandmother in Duchess Augusta of Saxe-Coburg-Saarfeld. They also shared in the kindness of Prince Leopold, who had supervised and paid for Albert's education, a gift that the young boy repaid in studiousness and capability. Their grandmother had been planning their marriage since they were children, and so, in 1836, Albert and his brother were sent to England to meet the then heir to the throne. Victoria was very taken with Albert, describing him as, quote, extremely handsome, his hair is about the same colour as mine, his eyes are large and blue, and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth, but the charm of his countenance is his expression, which is most delightful. While no formal offer was made, there was a certain understanding within their family that a marriage would be forthcoming. Yet, Victoria equivocated and stalled, unsure if she wanted to marry anyone. Therefore, three years later, in the immediate aftermath of the bedchamber crisis and the Flora Hastings affair, Albert returned to England to settle the question once and for all. Victoria, for her part, was determined to refuse him, but did not wish to embarrass him. She implored him not to come, but arrive he did, and very quickly, Victoria became utterly smitten. Only a few days later, Victoria proposed marriage to Albert, this reversal of traditional roles being because she was a monarch and therefore his superior. One of the joys about writing about this period is that we actually have a record of the proposal in Victoria's own words. Quote, At about half past twelve, I sent for Albert. He came to the closet where I was alone, and after a few minutes I said to him that I thought he must be aware why I wished him to come here, and that it would make me too happy if he would consent to what I wished to marry me. We embraced each other over and over again, and he was so kind, so affectionate, I really felt it was the happiest, brightest moment in my life. Now, this series isn't about Victoria. Perhaps one day on this podcast we will cover her in greater detail. But it is worth remarking on just how very different this marriage was to pretty much any other that I have covered before, and indeed how it differed from those of her daughters and granddaughters to come. Julia Baird writes that, quote, It is easy to forget how unconventional her relationship was. In many ways, Victoria's role was that of the man. She was the one to propose, to give Albert a ring first, and to ask for a lock of his hair. She was not obliged to take his name. In the most conventional of senses, Victoria had procured herself a wife. The spectator dismissed Albert as being a, quote, gilded puppet, 
and many viewed him as being a bit of a disappointing husband for the Queen. But she cared naught, and in many ways he was the perfect match for her. First of all, his intelligence and caring personality dovetailed well with her forthright, strong-willed and impulsive personality. They were both extremely hard-working and shared a common worldview. The fact that he came from such a minor principality was also an advantage. Previous queens of England and Scotland who had married had chosen very unpopular husbands, none more so than Mary I, whose marriage to Philip of Spain, described in a supplemental in the Queens of England podcast, was an absolute disaster. Contemporary politicians were uncertain as to how to deal with Albert. What role could or should he play? He was denied the title of King Consort, and found himself shut out of power, with Victoria still mostly taking political advice from Lord Melbourne, and running the household through her former governess, Baroness Lazen. He was denied his wish to become a member of the House of Lords, and while Melbourne did involve him in political discussions and listened to him when he opined on various topics, he rarely acted upon Albert's advice. But this would not last forever. Albert got involved in various political societies and worked in close concert with Victoria, placing their desks in front of each other so that they could share papers. Much like so many of the women that we have covered, though, his biggest jump in influence came through the production of a child. Victoria fell pregnant after only a few months of marriage, and, given the dangers of childbirth, it was considered prudent to name someone as regent should the worst happen. Albert was given that honour and responsibility, a signal of how far he had come. Victoria, of course, though, did not die, giving birth to her first child, Vicky, in November 1840. Albert further consolidated this power when Melbourne lost the general election of 1841 and was replaced as Prime Minister by the Tory peer, Lord Peel. And then again, when he engineered the departure of Victoria's former governess and great friend, Baroness Lazen, in that same year. He and his adviser, the German Baron von Stockmar, became the Queen's closest confidence, and would remain so, virtually unchallenged, until his death. But that said, he was no Conroy, nor was he equivalent to many husbands of queens in the past who dominated and ruled in the names of their sidelined wives. She was still the queen, he was merely the prince consort, and yet nor was he a background figure dedicated to a life of pleasure and disdaining a political role, such as, for example, Francis of Lorraine, husband of Empress Maria Theresa of Austria. Albert became, in effect, the Queen's private secretary. A constant source of advice and counsel, he was involved in every aspect of her rule. But while there were whispers that really he was the monarch and she the puppet, Victoria was always clear who it was that was sovereign. What helped them greatly was that while in temperament they differed greatly, they shared a desire to raise the culture of monarchy in Britain and abroad to a higher moral plane. The reputation of the monarchy had been thoroughly trashed in the time of her uncles, where vice, lethargy and diversion had been the order of the day. Albert once stated that, quote, The exaltation of royalty is possible only through the personal character of the sovereign. They both espoused the view that morality and virtue were synonymous with successful monarchy, and they did their best to live up to that standard themselves and evangelise it to their children. 
they also shared, as I said, a prodigious worth ethic. It is a favoured theme amongst Republicans that members of the royal family are lazy good-for-nothings that sit around all day doing nothing except mooch off the hard-working taxpayer. Anyone stating that to Victoria would have gotten a cold, hard stare, probably followed by a curt scold. It is estimated that, in a standard year, Victoria would be presented with tens of thousands of government dispatches, each of which she would study, annotate and return. There were also daily parliamentary reports to consider and other messages from notables, not to mention correspondence from her own diaspora family members spread across the continent. This was a vast amount of work, but Victoria considered it her duty to be an involved and hard-working monarch. Now, we are in danger of venturing too far into territory that we will cover in future episodes now. So, for the rest of the episode... I want to briefly cover who the children of Victoria and Albert were, and what kind of a mother she was. We'll then go into far more detail on the childhoods of Vicky, Alice and Beatrice in their own mini-series. First things first, to state the obvious, Victoria and Albert had a bunch of kids. Victoria had a voracious sexual appetite, which, when coupled with her adoration of her husband, meant that she gave herself every opportunity to become pregnant. This was actually fairly unusual for the age. Female sexuality was looked on with great concern. Women with high libidos were thought to be nymphomaniacs and dangerous to the social order. But there were practical reasons as well as societal. At a time before birth control and when people still didn't know what actually caused pregnancy, some doctors, for example, believed that it was caused by orgasms, every act of intercourse brought with it the risk of impregnation and childbirth of this time was still risky. Victoria was only on the throne because George IV's heir, the beloved Princess Charlotte, had died in childbirth. It is estimated that in Victorian times, the maternal mortality rate was around one for every 200 births, or, to put it in standard modern terminology, 500 maternal deaths for every 100,000 births. To compare that to the present day, that would put Victorian Britain in the top 20 of countries with the worst maternal mortality rates, around the same as modern Eritrea. The UK's current rate, by comparison, is at 9 per 100,000. The worst of the developed countries for maternal mortality, the US, is at 26, far, far less than 500. The spectre of death that hung over every sexual act make Victoria's enjoyment of sex, written about frequently in her journal, all the more remarkable. During her time, Victoria would give birth nine times in total, all of them successfully, and with children who all survived to adulthood. Those pregnancies took place over the first 17 years of her reign, meaning that, if you do the maths, you can work out that she spent pretty much half her time in those years pregnant. Now, fair warning, I'm going to go through all her children now, but I don't expect you to remember all their names right away. Here they are, though, in any case. I'm sure that eventually you'll get the hang of them. So, as I've already said, first of all, there was Victoria, though usually called Vicky or Pussy. Then there came Albert Edward, the future Edward VII, whom everyone called Bertie. Then Alice, after whom came Alfred, or also known as Affy. Helena followed, and then finally rounding them out were Louise, Arthur, Leopold, and Beatrice. 
Victoria's relationship with children and motherhood more generally has come under a great deal of scrutiny. She wasn't really the traditionally maternal sort, with that kind of nurturing support coming more naturally from Albert. She loathed pregnancy, which took a terrible toll on her body. When she died, her doctors discovered that she had a prolapsed uterus and ventral hernia, both of which would have caused her tremendous pain, and both caused by frequent difficult labours. She often complained of the discomfort and pains associated with pregnancy and childbirth, but didn't get much sympathy from those around her, even her beloved Albert. It has long been accepted by most biographers of Victoria that she was a disinterested mother, who struggled to connect with her children, but that isn't really the case. Part of the reason for this is the selective bias in the collections of her letters that have been published, almost always by men, which largely omit her conversations with women about childbirth and motherhood. This means that we are left with often glib remarks about motherhood that she sent to her daughter Vicky, but these were largely long after she had borne her last child, where the physical toll it had taken on her, along with grief at the loss of her husband, weighed far more heavily on her. That said, she wrote fondly of all her children, especially when they were young, and appears to have been a doting mother. She would gush over their beauty and adorable behaviour, and loved watching Albert play with them. The closeness of the bond that she shared with many of her daughters, most notably Vicky, with whom she shared a correspondence of at least 8,000 letters, is a testament to how much she loved her children. She was known for spending far more time with them when they were babies than was normal for the time. But even with that, her duties as queen meant that her time with them was always going to be limited. She was certainly capable of being very forthright and cutting about them, and children in general, especially in her journal and in particular in later years. She once wrote to her daughter, quote, You know perfectly well that I do not hate babies, quite the contrary if they are pretty, but I do hate an inordinate worship of them and the disgusting details of their animal existence which I try to ignore. As I said, it was the terrible memories of pregnancy and childbirth that seems to have soured her memories of having children. She periodically suffered from periods of postnatal depression, particularly after the birth of Bertie, which may also have given her the impression of great coldness. She could also be quite harsh on them. Albert, who was quite capable of being rather cruel to his wife on occasion, once wrote that, quote, It is indeed a pity that you find no consolation in the company of your children. The root of the trouble lies in the mistaken notion that the function of a mother is to be always correcting, scolding, ordering them about and organising their activities. It is not possible to be on happy, friendly terms with people you have just been scolding. Albert, though the more natural parent, wasn't perfect either. He was incredibly hard-working, proudly upright in his morals and an unbending perfectionist, and expected all of his sons, especially his eldest Bertie, to be the same. To his daughters, he was kindness personified, but he was every bit the Victorian stereotype when it came to his son's education. Perhaps inevitably, given the number of children that they had, it is very clear that both parents had their favourites, and everyone knew it. Albert absolutely doted on his daughter Vicky, and the two were incredibly close, to the point where Victoria became actively jealous of the time that her daughter was spending with her husband. Their relationship only truly blossomed thanks to their shared grief over Albert's death. For her part, Victoria loved her youngest daughter Beatrice best, 
seeing her as the last member of the family not to have abandoned her to death or marriage. Neither of them had a particularly good relationship with the rather wild and hedonistic Bertie, preferring his brothers Affie and Arthur. It is worth also making a few general remarks about the upbringing of these children, though of course I'll go into more detail in later episodes. They all grew up bilingual, speaking both English and German, and reportedly all, save Leopold, spoke English with a distinct German accent. While Victoria and particularly Albert were more involved parents than was typical, especially in early years, they actually would not have spent a huge amount of time with their children, who were raised by a retinue of nannies, tutors, governors and governesses. These children were brought up for very specific purposes. The daughters were all destined for marriage alliances, that much had not changed very much over centuries, while the sons were raised either to rule or have military careers before settling down to marry, also for advantage, and have children to further the line. Vicky married the heir to the throne of Prussia. Bertie, destined to be king, was married off to Alexander of Denmark, whose sweetness and purity it was hoped would tame his wilder urges. Alice, with whom Victoria struggled to bond as she found her haughty and self-absorbed, married, you guessed it, a German in Prince Ludwig of Hesse. Affy, the Duke of Edinburgh, was raised to inherit his uncle's title of Duke of Saxe-Coburg and had a dashing career in the Royal Navy, where he developed a bit of a sailor's tongue which annoyed Victoria no end. He would fall in love with Maria Alexandrovna, daughter of the Russian Tsar, whose insistence on being referred to as Her Imperial Highness some claim is the reason why Victoria was so keen on becoming Empress of India. Helena was one of the family's rebels and was far from the typical Victorian woman, being fervently interested in science and medicine. She was a founding member of the British Red Cross and took on a keen interest in nursing, being a follower of Florence Nightingale and president of the British Nurses Association. She married the Prince of Schleswig-Holstein, a rather lowly match that was really because he was the only suitable of suitable birth who was willing to live in England, meaning that Victoria would not be separated from her daughter. Louise, the blonde bombshell of the family, was also probably the greatest inheritor of Victoria's stubbornness and propensity for barbed and cruel words. She became the first royal princess to marry a subject in 350 years, marrying the heir to the Duchy of Argyle. Ten points to any of you who can guess who the last princess was to do so? Anyone? It was Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII, who married Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, in 1515. Arthur went into the army, where he spent his entire life serving around the world, most notably in Canada, South Africa, India and Ireland. He married Louise of Prussia, somewhat controversially actually, because she was the daughter of divorced parents. Their children would later include a future Queen of Sweden. Leopold was the first of the offspring of Victorian Albert to have suffered from haemophilia, the condition that prevented blood from clotting that so came to define their extended family. He had a great mind, but understandably was mollycoddled for fear that any injury would lead to his death. He had a brief but happy marriage to the German Helen of Valdeck-Piermont before dying at the age of just 30. Finally, Beatrice, the youngest. She was only four when her father died, and would spend most of her entire life in her mother's service in one form or another. 
She followed in the family tradition of marrying German, though, falling in love with Henry of Battenberg. But more on that in a future episode. These children were held up as paragons of a new kind of monarchy, a disciplined and moral one, far removed from the excesses of the Georgians. It espoused middle-class values rather than the snootiness of the aristocracy. With revolution periodically sweeping Europe, various monarchies being challenged or even overthrown, Victorian Albert strongly believed that their very survival depended on their upright moral leadership and good public image. There were carefully choreographed family events to show their unity and perfection, and children indulging in scandal were reminded of their duty. It is this, above all, that really led to this image of Victoria as the stern figure of modern caricature. But, in many ways, this was just a front to the rather warmer and caring personality that often lay beneath. Above all else, she was not really a woman or a mother. She was a queen. And that duty came above all other things, including her own happiness, and it was the root cause of many of the difficulties that she had with her children. Victoria was a transformative queen, a figure that sat astride not only her own nation and empire, but the whole continent. The marriages that I just talked you through, along with those of their children, were designed to not only extend British prestige, but enforce a kind of Pax Britannia, a soft power push to spread liberal values against the twin tides of conservative nationalism and anarchic revolution. She and Albert were two of European history's greatest matchmakers, and took great care in the choice of spouse for each of their descendants. And it didn't end with marriage. Letters regarding foreign policy, domestic reform, birthday celebrated, children welcome, pets acquired, ping-ponged around Europe, meaning that members of this great extended family were well-connected. At her Golden Jubilee in 1887, Victoria famously refused to wear her crown during the parade around London. She insisted, pushing back against the ardent pleading of her children and ministers, on wearing a bonnet instead. She presented a world not of Gloriana, bedecked in gold and diamonds, but of the Universal Mother. Hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets. Over 50 ruling kings and princes were present, including Indian Maharajas, Islamic sultans, and royals from lands as distant as Japan and Hawaii. The procession was led by Bertie, the Prince of Wales, and contained carriage after carriage and horse after horse, bearing members of Victoria's family, who had travelled across the world to be there. It was, in many ways, the crowning glory of Imperial Britain. At that moment, that small island off the northwest coast of Europe really did seem to be at the very centre of the world, with Queen Victoria as its shining core. But Victoria and Albert's dreams of a Europe united through the British royal family were even then floundering, and would eventually fall, finally dying in the trenches and amid the mud of Belgium and northern France. At the heart of Victoria and Albert's plans had been the liberalisation of Germany, bringing it into line with his natural ally, Britain. It is for that reason they married their eldest child to the future king of Prussia. And it is that story that we shall begin with next time. The life and times of Victoria, Princess Royal of the United Kingdom, Crown Princess of Prussia, 
and later Empress Frederick of Germany. 